All right. Hello, everyone. Um, hi. I know. That's good. Um, we are an intimate audience, so it's nice, actually, to have some conversation with you. Um, my name's Emily Sexton. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered today on the lands of the Kulin Nations. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and anybody um, who is Indigenous and might be joining us today. Um, these are the lands of the Bunurung and the Wurundjeri people. Um, they have gathered here for a really long time and um, it's an honour to do the same on their lands, on what always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, as I said, I'm Emily Sexton and it's um, a really great uh, privilege to be here um, at the invitation of Arts House and in partnership um, with the Festival of Live Art that's taking place as we speak um, and also with the State Library of Victoria. Um, you're here to hear from Steve Lambert and Steve has worked alongside artists and activists in 15 countries on four continents helping them to affect power. He's trained in the arts and he's known for large-scale public projects that engage new audiences on difficult topics through the social science of comedy, games, theatre and democratic participation. Steve is the co-founder and co-director of the Centre for Artistic Activism. It's a research and training institute to help activists be more creative and artists to be more effective and we will hear a lot more about those kinds of ideas. Um, Steve made international news after the 2008 US election with the New York Times Special Edition. It was a replica of the paper of record and it announced the end of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and a whole host of other good news. Um, his current, or well, the project that we are, um, uh, that is being presented as part of FOLA is uh, Capitalism Works For Me, True or False? And it began in the summer of 2011. Um, he's... We will hear so much more about his work, but they've won a range of really um, fantastic awards. The Prizarts Electronica um, Awards from the, um, the New Museum, the Creative Work Fund, all sorts of really different um, and really interesting uh, institutions. So please join me in giving me a huge, warm, very Melbourne welcome. <laughs> Uh, if you're on Twitter and you're wanting to um, tweet what we're saying, um, it is the hashtag is FOLA2018, uh, but we are recording this conversation as well. So I wanted to start with a, just a little bit of personal background so we can get to know you. Um, I was reading something where you said that you chose to be an artist because it... I chose to be an artist because it gave me the most freedom. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't think I knew what I wanted to do, right? And so the idea of, uh, my parents made furniture and I didn't want to do that. And uh, I knew I didn't want to go into business or something. And when I saw it, that there were certain art programs, especially like if, schools that didn't require me to choose a major, it's like that's for me, right? I can kind of explore whatever I want to explore. Um, and uh, mostly, I think I just wanted to learn. I didn't want to, there, I didn't have a, a great idea of an objective that I was trying to reach in learning. I just had, was curious about things, you know. You went on a really big journey towards that point, though, of um, being someone who knew that they wanted to learn in your experience with the education system. Yeah, so I had a really hard time in school. I mean, I think I, I did really well. Uh, <laughs> why do I feel like I have to say that? Um, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I tried, um, and, I, and I was a pretty good student, but it, the school system was very frustrating, and eventually I dropped out. Um, How old were you? Maybe like, like 15? 15, yeah. yeah. Um, so I dropped out of high school, and for me, that, that whole period and ending that was like um, both freedom and pressure. Right, so I felt like I can do whatever I want. Um, I could go, you could drop out of high school and go to college where I lived. Like not a prestigious college, but a college. And um, so I knew I could go do that and I could kind of um, explore, learn, learn and explore the things I wanted to learn. But I also felt this pressure to like keep up with the timeline. And I was very aware of when I would have graduated from high school and when I would have finished college had I gone on this more traditional route. And, um, and so that was like always a looming in my head. 
Your parents were both um, people of faith, um, who, yeah. in different sort ways, of. sort of, yeah, unconventional maybe, but yeah. you know, people who definitely um, had religious beliefs. And so, what kind of uh, role does or did that play at the time um, in in their kind of um, support of you exploring a creative life? And, and maybe um, what role does it play now? They were really good. Like when I was, I remember when I was a kid. My dad was committed to every birthday and Christmas we got tools or art supplies. So when I was five, I had a toolbox with like a hammer with my name on it and a screwdriver with my ha name on it. I think they're also broke. Um, but, uh, and you know, like a Even set more so, like if they were broke, they committed to still Christmas right, and birthday, right? Right, yeah, yeah. But like in that toolbox was fuses. <laughs> So that when a fuse blew in the house, me and my brother would be like, use mine. I have one. Oh, you know? that's awesome. And I think they just had fuses because we blew fuses and put them in the toolbox. Um, that we also got like bikes that had been um, from the police department that <laughs> no one claimed. And those became our bikes, you know. Um, yeah, so you they, were from a pretty a, a poor background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I knew that, but... Um, yeah, so anyway, they would buy us like tools and art supplies and, re you know, really encourage us to, to do that if that's what we wanted to do. There was still some pressure. I think it made them anxious that when I w left high school, uh, but at that point it was really clear that's what needed to happen, so. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested, I guess, in, in how their faith shaped oh, yeah. who you are now as an artist. Well, I, I kind of laugh when you say that because they were, it wasn't a big part of, it wasn't really a part of our, my life growing up. Like, they, we went to church for weddings and funerals and that was pretty much it. And um, I didn't really, I didn't know, of course, what it meant that they were a monk and a nun. They were a monk and a nun, by the way. Um, and I, like, you know, my dad wore the monk's robe around the house as a bathrobe. And That's respectful. <laughs> I think he just, did, he didn't want to waste it. You know, he didn't want to throw it away. Yeah, cool. Um, but he, he did that until it had too many holes in it that I guess my mom decided it was, uh, yeah. That happened a lot where my mom would be like, this this, these clothes are no longer viable clothing and destroy them. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we didn't, we didn't go to church. They would sort of answer questions if we asked them. They didn't really, they would sort of talk about it in a really casual way. But it, it wasn't the sort of formal faith part. It was the, the values, right? So they, they quit and they started this furniture business and made custom furniture, but they only hired all their employees were um, Vietnam vets that had just gotten out of recovery. And I didn't really realize this till later either because they didn't talk about it um, much at all. It was just who they hired, right? So they would go to the Veterans Administration, get some guys that were just off cocaine and be like, with no experience with woodworking, but you know, willing to learn. And uh, that was like how they kept ministering. Mm -hmm. And so their approach was really this, it was a part of everyday life. And that was the part that I absorbed without them really trying to teach it. it was like, you don't do good things on Sunday necessarily. You don't like, that's not a separate part of your life. It's this, it's how you live all the time. And so when it came time for me to be an artist, the idea that I would do, like I talk to artists that are like, well, I'd, I don't make political art. Uh, I, I make my work and then I try to volunteer and I do these good things. And like that to me doesn't make any sense at all, you know. Um, so tell us what is the relationship between art and activism? You have a center for this. So it yeah. must be something you think about a, a lot. Um, what, yeah, how do those two things interact? They have always existed together. <laughs> um, that that r truly effective activism, if you look back throughout history, ha always has a creative component or it doesn't really work, right? The thing is that we don't see it because it's, as those things happen, it just becomes the way that you do it. 
and we don't remember it as being the first time or an innovation. It's just, you know, so one example, there's really great examples in the US civil rights movement, like uh, lunch counter sit-in, right? There were things kind of like that, but that is a site-specific performance, right? That is um, in, a, in the Woolworths and with specific people that are in a costume. They're like dressed in ties and suits intentionally. They rehearsed it. They would literally met in a, in a the, I think it was a nearby university, in the theater department and would practice, like sit there and then like throw water in each other's faces and scream horrible things at them. But they had to like remain dignified and they trained, right? So that they could. And you can see these rehearsal videos where they're like yelling horrible things at each other and then someone can't, it just becomes too funny and they all start laughing, you know? Um, and so then they do that performance and the performance both is for the, it's not really for the location, it's for the photograph. And those photographs become incredibly important, right? So you've got a performance costume um, imagery, right? And if you ask young people like what, what is activism or how do you do, how do you protest? I mean, they, you know, like there's sit-ins at universities because of what they understand is in the end the photograph or the, the method, but not really the, what went into coming up with that tactic, right? But really effective tactics have this sort of creative background, but I think it benefits uh, people in power if they think of art as a separate thing that's meant to decorate their guest room um, and that is strictly visual and, and more academic and more um, theoretical instead of like this key component of like how people express themselves and how they communicate with each other and how culture affects policy and power. Like, that's not, that's a dangerous thing to sort of be open about, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, do you think that all artists are powerful? And are no, they all political? I wish they were. Yeah. I think there's some really like disempowering, uh, I mean, I, I don't know as much about Australia. I know that Australia is different than the US. I can see that. Um, <laughs> but, in that the US. busts a, a, a cultural myth in and of itself, so, <laughs> so thanks for saying that. <laughs> yeah, we have um, some very strong myths about artists, like, you know, and, and like starving artists, right? That you, it's, just, it's very hard, that you can't make money, which is a, r r uh, rooted in something true, but not entirely true, um, that you work alone that you have these ideas alone and you work on them in isolation and then deliver them to people uh, when they're done. And that you uh, will only be understood when you're dead, uh, best appreciated after you've, you're dead. Um, you know, things like this that, that we all uh, probably recognize, but that I think that artists know better, but we still, t I still fight with that, right? Like I was working in South Africa on the AIDS conference with uh, sex workers on human rights issues and this was like a year ago and I started to have two really difficult moments one was when I realized I was working in an office and I was like I'm an artist I don't work in an office but that was like why I went there was to to work with them and they worked in an office right and the work I was doing was not office work but it just was like I'm not supposed to be here this is not who I am and like felt this sort of conflict, right? And then the other thing was when we talked about the projects, like there were objectives, there were real objectives that would have, that did help them um, move that issue forward in South Africa in huge strides in the, in the time that we were able to work together. And I kept thinking like, what's the slide gonna be though? Like what's the one image, like the, the image of the newspaper that I have? Right, like people see that and they get it, and they even staged it. Right, if you look at the one, if you look this up, there's a picture of a yellow cab blurred in the background because we wanted to sort of. Be, I did. I took the picture months later. <laughs> you know, like went out on the street, waited for a cab to go by, because I knew that would tell that story. Right, but the I, New York Times special edition. Right, yep. but I didn't have a. I was like, what's gonna be the singular picture that w when I talk, give a talk like this, that people will look at that and be like, oh wow, I get it. 
And that, it wasn't that kind of work, right? Like it wasn't that at all. And in fact, it was the most, probably the, some of the most important and successful and like really work that I'd ever done. And, 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 and I can confidently say like, I was like up there with like, this, I'm still really proud of it, but it doesn't, it doesn't fit into an image and it's not a story I can tell quickly. Um, but in the moment, I kept, I felt that, I felt that pressure of what I was, you know, and the voices from undergrad that were like, document your work. Um, you know, you need to have a portfolio, right? All that stuff that had been drilled into me that had I thought, had I taken that on too much, and I'm like the person that should know better too, but um, had I taken that on too much, the work wouldn't have been as, as good. And, you know, and in that way, those myths are disempowering mm. and, and have these weird, you know, psychological effects on what artists think they can do. We just had a, just for the sake of recording, someone's thanking Steve for his work, which is a lovely thing to do. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. We'll get more to audience questions, so I, hopefully we can hear from you further. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit to talk about, um, and it may be that you can sort of draw out some of the examples from, from what happened in South Africa, but um, uh, you've talked in the past about an, the ethical spectacle. Yeah. That's and actually Steve Duncombe, oh, okay. who I work with. He, right. What him is it? And this guy, Andrew Boyd, came up with that term in a bar. Okay as you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, sorry, what was the question? Well, what, what, yeah, what would you, how would you describe an ethical spectacle and, and how does it relate to the work that you do, maybe with Steve, but also beyond yeah. that? So it comes from Steve Duncombe's book, uh, Dream, uh, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy. And yes, uh, Dream, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy. And it I think it got reissued or republished, reprinted recently because it's newly relevant. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, the, the idea is that, I mean, his whole book is about it, right? So I'll try to summarize. <laughs> but that a lot of people think of spectacle as associated with advertising, with commercial spectacle, or the, you know, some of the best purveyors of spectacle, unfortunately, were the Nazis, right? Like they, they knew how to put on a show. Uh, like it, content aside, they they had costumes, they had they understood lighting, they made these films. Like Hitler was an artist, as Steve says, his medium wasn't painting; it was it was people. Mm. And so that that often makes people say, "Wow, well, we can't do that, right?" That's what advertisers do. And I had come from the he had studied history more. I had studied. And he also studied advertising too. But my thing was like, well, I don't, if we take these tools off the table, what, what's left, right? Like it's, it's yielding so much to, the, to the commercial industries and leaves so little for artists, right? So an ethical spectacle sort of is a way of avoiding some of the problems of working with spectacles. One is, um, I'll try to remember some of my favorites and you can read the book for the rest, is that um, it's transparent. So um, you're not trying to trick everyone, anyone. Everyone sort of understands who you are, what your role is, what your real opinion is. Um, and his, a great example of that is a group called Billionaires for Bush, who were billionaires that would campaign for George Bush in like Monopoly Man outfits and talk about how the, all these tax cuts were gonna be so great for them. It was an incredibly successful project, but you know, you'd never see these people and mistake them for an actual billionaire. Um, and in that way, it was transparent. Um, another one is participatory, which sort of gets to what other things are happening at Festival of Live Art, right? Like, if you are involving other people, not in just the viewing of it, but in planning it and making the work, that it's more likely to be, you're, you're more likely to avoid ethical problems, right? So if they become authors of parts of it, you know, you can create the structure, but they author pieces of it then you can avoid some of those problems. And we use it, I mean, I, I read it and kind of absorbed it and it had it resonated with a lot of things I had done before. What he was really good at was clarifying it and, and making a great 
you know, so you could sort of look at it and be like, yes, there's these six things. I can check this off. Perfect. You know, <laughs> where in my mind now. it was, yeah, more blurry, you know, but it was there. So. Yeah, cool. You've spoken a bit and collaborated a lot um, with people who work in the advertising space. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, that sort of uneasy, uh, I guess productively uneasy fascination you seem to have with, with advertising and what it does and the tools that it uses and the way it can communicate with lots of people? I, I think, I don't know that I've worked with a lot of them. They're more like fascinated by me. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, I think um, I, I had a project called the Anti-Advertising Agency for a lot of years that we were structured like a parody of an advertising agency and um, made work that was critical of advertising's role in public space, but using their methods. Mm. And so I studied it a lot and, um, and I, you know, yeah, it's those tools that that are so effective, but the message that they're conveying to me is horrifying, but the ability or the means that they do it can be really inspiring. Mm. Um, you've spoken a bit, so I want to talk a little bit about the work that you've here with in Melbourne. Um, and uh, in terms of capitalism works for me, you've, I'm really interested in how you understand um, the process of people becoming actively political in some way as an, um, an, as an affective experience. Yeah. Um, t can you tell us a bit about that? Well, in a way, the capitalism sign is not the best example. Okay. In some other ways it is. Yeah, sure. um, for me, like the standard of if I've been successful is there's a, like a measurable outcome and the, or behavior change, right? Mm -hmm. the, the idea that this has uh, frustrated me for about a decade or longer, the... Um, like you ask an artist what they're trying to do and they say, I just want to raise awareness. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think every time I, someone says that, I say, okay, so if everyone was aware, like say, I'm, I'm going to use a kind of a illustrative example. Say we were talking about racism or here would be like First Nations thing or something, right? And like, I just want to raise awareness about this problem. So, okay, you raised awareness, everyone understands, but nothing changed, is that okay? Mm. And their answer is always, well, well no. <laughs> like, okay, what else do you want, right? You're gonna make this work. Um, you're gonna spend all this time, you're good at what you do. So what, what would you like to see happen? And they usually have answers, but this is, again, an echo of that, um, disempowering of artists is like I'm just here to point this out I can just make this thing that has people reflect and think about it I can start a conversation but I don't want to control the conversation I don't want to I don't want to manipulate anyone right um, and and that becomes like this all-or-nothing thing where you can you can think about how you can guide an audience right like that that can be part of success and it doesn't have to be manipulating at all I mean, I hope nobody that has experienced a capitalism sign, they shouldn't feel manipulated. They should feel challenged, and they should feel pr prompted and maybe pushed a little bit. But I'm not trying to um, manipulate or have them, yeah, have them feel like... I mean, I think ultimately their experience ends in their own personal choice, so... Right. The you can think of whatever you want to think, and you press the button. Right. on your own basis yeah. still. And but if you I don't want to talk to anyone too, I mean, we'll, we'll try to challenge you and get you to talk, but you, you don't want to do it, you just want to press it, I mean, that happens, you know. Um, but the idea is to have, to, is I'm really thinking about the experience all the way through and that it ends with them acting differently in the world because if they're not acting differently in the world or some policy doesn't change, all you've done is made artwork where the medium is a social problem, which to me is sort of, that's, I can't do that, you know, like. How do you, okay, it's such a tall order you're putting on yourself. How, how, do, you, um, how do you know that people are different as, after they've experienced? I want to like watch it happen. I want to see it in their face, mm. you know. Um, so they may come very confident in whatever they believe um, and it, well, okay, so the ultimate outcome 
for me with the capitalism sign. The capitalism sign is like the very beginning. It is sort of a raising awareness thing. And that's why and it's I say really it's not. seductive as well in, in yeah. its kind of um, semantics. You know, it looks so retro and kind right. of sexy. It plays with all of our ideas of like, oh, that looks a bit cool. I want to get in there and have a look. Right. Yeah. And, and there's actually we, one of the things that I found really inspiring when I was studying and that we use in the workshops that we do with activists and artists is talk about how people move from exposure to an idea to that becoming part of who they are. And, you know, when we were initially doing our research, we had asked artists that I respect, that I think are making great work, that who I will not name. Uh, <laughs> but if you, if I named them, you'd be like, right, right. And we would say, like, okay, so what, what do you ultimately want? And one of them was, would say, like, you know, the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. It's very specific, right? Yeah. Measurable. It's a good objective. <laughs> so that's what you want. Um, and we'd say, okay, so you're making this work. What happens in between? How do you get from I make this piece to that? And they didn't really have an answer, you know? Like, it's a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just make stuff and maybe someday it'll all contribute to something. And it becomes really mushy. And if you talk to advertising people, if you talk to people that actually work on like health, communication, they have lots of ideas about what has to happen in between. Mm -hmm. And if I, I might be able to remember a good number of them and impress you all. Um, so it starts with exposure, then there has to be interest. So exposure is like the sign is out in the world, you have the chance to look at it, it's over there. But like many things that are exist in the periphery of our vision, I, I might not take an interest into it, in it, right? I, it's just not for me or I don't really, I'm on the phone, I'm doing something else, right? So that's the next necessary step to move the person to the, what comes after that, which is, um, I think it's comprehension, right? So what is this? Uh, what, what am I supposed to do? How does it work? Um, what are you asking from me? Um, and then the next thing, I might get this wrong, but is like agreement, like, okay, that's something that I want to do. Mm -hmm. And then you keep going and going and going, right? And so the capitalism sign is meant to do a lot of those things at the beginning for getting people to consider an alternative to capitalism. That's, that would be the end. Actually, an alternative to capitalism would be the ultimate goal, right? But um, that, they, that they would advocate for something that would work better for everyone. What that is specifically is, is a very contentious issue and not one that I'm interested in debating or anything, but something better, right? that's where we're moving towards. And, um, and so the, the sign is meant to do that. Something like an environmental issue, you don't need to do the, the beginning parts. Most people already understand and agree that we need to do something. Mm -hmm. The question is, what, what do I do? How do I do it? Where's the opportunity? And so the, it, raising awareness about environmental issues to me is um, far less necessary in 2018. But yeah. capitalism, you need to. Well, capitalism do some of the is perceived to be education. some sort of natural yeah. um, experience, outcome, system. Yeah. I guess as a. And and everywhere I go, they think it's the version of the mar mix of capitalism, whatever kind of markets or non-markets you have in that culture, is like the only way. But in you know, I've traveled around enough to know capitalism is different in every place. Mm. Um, across your work. It seems to me that you're incredibly interested in, yeah, not just the concept of the work, but how it is communicated and how it is understood. And I, I wondered about, yeah, what you understand about capitalism, having had th literally thousands of conversations about it. Um, yeah, what are the sort of most pervasive myths that come out? And, and what are the strategies that you've now come up with to kind of, you know, sort of shake those myths, I guess? Um, well, one is that there this is the end of an evolution that okay. you know all other systems have failed this is the best there is and then the, the more cynical extension of that is that um there could never be anything better and unless someone specifically shows me a plan that i agree with what is the point of even thinking about it oh, Which, it's so depressing yeah right yeah, yeah yeah it's imagine hearing that from a 20 year old yeah <laughs> just like um, so that's one. Um, another one that is also frustrating to hear is... Um, 
sorry, maybe just starting with that one. Yeah. How do you? Um, what kind of conversation do you have when you know you often get, especially something something like that, out of a twenty year old? How yeah. do you how do you debunk or shift? Well, um, a big part of it is trying to hear what they're saying and then throw something at them that is surprising. Because the surprise part is really important for them to be thinking, right? Mm. If, the, if you argue with them or debate what they're saying, they expect that, they have, they often, and they'll, they'll dig in. And this is uh, just a psychological thing with human beings, right? Mm. Like, um, so anyway, if you say, oh, you're wrong, um, then they're like immediately thinking about how they're right and how to argue it back. Um, and then if you say things that they've heard before or how that argument's been framed before, then they're not thinking, they're just repeating stuff that they've already thought. And so the trick is to come up with something that they've never, they're not expecting. And so sometimes if it's a 20 year old, I'd be like, oh my God, you're such a cynic. <laughs> and they don't expect like that kind of, um, like me to confront them and maybe be a little bit rude. <laughs> and so th that will jar them. I'm like, oh, this is not the interaction I thought we would have. I'm like, I need you, you're like a young person. You should be like dreaming. You should be like thinking about all kinds of stuff that I've never even thought of or like con would consider possible. Um, what, but you, what you're happened? also playing low status in that moment, right? You're like, you're better than me. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. need you to be better. I'm too old to I'm do a this. really old we man. Need you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, shape shifting <laughs> that happens. And then another one is like, um, oh, but the, or, uh, yeah, what is the alternative? And I'll say, oh, the alternatives are infinite. We could try all different kinds of things. As you know, mm. there have been, you know, there's the capitalism we have here in Australia, and then there's capitalism that we have in the United States. It's a very different thing. I, you know, believe me, I know. And, and, uh, and then there's, you know, all different kinds of economic systems that get implemented in different ways and different mixes around the world. So, of course, we have a ton of options. What do you think would be better? And, the, and it's pushing them to think about, you know, like, oh, there's, we can do anything, right? It's a democracy, like that kind of stuff. And, and it's an experiment every time with every person, but those are some of the things that I've kind of picked yeah, up. Right. Um, we are going to come to your questions very shortly, but I, um, one of the things that I have thought a lot about, because I have done a lot of programming of these kind of conversation, um, and it's something we have wrestled with, is that it, uh, it it's, and it came out even more profoundly in, after the election of Trump, um, is that when it comes to changing minds or even having a conversation about um, understanding the other and having empathy for the other, it's something that liberals and progressives are mostly most interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we, you know, the idea of, or, or even having anxiety about living in a bubble is not something that conservative people are particularly worried about right. how do you how do you reconcile that idea or maybe like a lot of people are like oh okay um you know i do think that that's important to talk to people who have different values mm -hmm. to you but what do you reckon so i've done some work in birmingham alabama and what kind of place is that oh <laughs> you know those pictures of kids getting hosed down by the fire department and dogs attacking them from the civil rights movement. Yeah. That's from their town square. Okay. And so the myth in Birmingham is, oh yeah, there was racism, but we fixed it. Okay. That's hmm. in the pictures. Yeah. Right? Like that was then, those are black and white. This is now. And, um, and so I, it's part of it is like learning the myths of the place or the myths that people have and then working with them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think also is understanding that I think, or again, my experience of people in the American South is that when you're talking about abstractions and like those people or the, like there it was immigrants, which they're not on the, a border. They're in the middle of the kind of, there's, yeah, yeah. they're landlocked. Um, that are nearly landlocked, but um, then it's easier to to think 
I mean, they're not even really thinking, to, to, to not think about people, but in person, they're, they pride themselves on their friendliness, it being open. New York City, people don't say hello to each other. We say hello to each other, right? And so um, it's, there was a guy the other day, this is a sort of parallel example, but he kept saying about, you know. Here in Melbourne. Mm-hmm, he's like, yeah, you know, some people, they just choose to do drugs. And, uh, and, you know, are they, they're, they're born into families where people do drugs. I don't understand that. And, it, and if you choose to do drugs, like, capitalism's not going to work for you. And so he had this idea in his mind of drug users, right? And I was right. like, you know, I have to tell you something. I kind of like drugs. <laughs> <laughs> like, not a lot, you know, not all of them, but some of them. And I think throughout time, <laughs> if you think about it, We've always made like mind-altering substances and people have used them and some of them have gotten addicted. And that's too bad. But, you know, drugs have always been a part of, our, of humanity, mm. you know, from wine to whatever. And he was like, you know, and, he, and if it's me saying I use drugs, right, which, you know, it's partially true. <laughs> we all do a little bit, you know. Um, uh, then he's looking at me and he has, you know what I mean? It's, it's a little bit harder to, to other people. Yeah. Yeah. To make it abstract. Yeah. Yeah. So in, I guess coming back to my, to the uh, question about whether we should come out of our bubbles or not. Well, yeah, we should. And I think it's like this personal. Right. Right. Okay. It's the personal connection that will yeah, make there, it. Uh, achievable or yeah I think so if we were to like characterize uh, a sort of left person who's traveling and open and wants to like encounter people that don't believe what they do and be you know and listen that yeah we should do that and um, and don't be surprised that those people will respond to you as a real person Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's like learning these myths about and 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 moving them right like Mm -hmm. uh, where do we connect and then by the way there are a lot of other people like me. Drug users aren't all bad. Or, you know, uh, I mean, uh, these things come up over and over again. Yeah, LGBT cool. people, sex workers, whatever, mm. you know, um, that you're a reasonable person. And we're just talking about these things. And this is how I think about it, you know, that that can be, that person next time might say, might, he might be less willing to characterize it that way. Yeah. Or to understand that there are, it's not a singular group of people. Mm. How I'm interested, just before we go to you guys, um, on your own uh, personal experience of standing out on the street for a number of hours each day and and talking to strangers, um, it must be exhausting. Um, And I'm sort of curious about, I guess, your resilience strategies or your own (laughs) self-care. Like, how do... you know, it's having those kind of really on conversations, really difficult conversations with people for hours um, and choosing to do that for your life. How, how have you kind of sustained that in an um, ongoing fashion? I take breaks. I'm also like a university teacher, so there's like fluency. I have to do it a couple times a week. Do you think um, you get better at that kind of dialogue and it becomes less kind of intense upon your own? Yeah, yeah, or it... Um, it just comes more easily. That's mm-hmm. practice, right? And then another thing is I take breaks. Um, I don't do this all the time, you know, like I do it a few times a year. I, but with teaching, I do it quite a bit. And then um, another thing is like, it's really important to me that it has to be fun for me. Yeah. Right? That if someone is kind of a jerk, <laughs> that there's boundaries where uh, I, I told everyone that worked on it, it's like at any point, just be like, it was really nice to meet you and sort of turn away Mm. and it's not you you can end the conversation whenever you want Mm. and there are um this came up a couple days ago steve duncombe taught me this uh and it's like a motto of his family it's become a motto of the center for artistic activism which is don't organize around the assholes (laughs) right there are these people that get our focus because they're so bad um, or so racist, or, uh, you know, when I was in Birmingham, it was a real challenge not to think of, like, the audience as, like, clan members, but in fact, that's a small, really vocal minority, and there are a lot of really reasonable people, 
And so to, to part of the resilience is like, don't focus on the worst people. And, and they're, very, they're very magnetic in a you know, South Pole wrong way. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, don't, don't let them become your focus, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, great. Um, if we can get some microphones, and if you just want to wait for the um, guys to come around and give you one. Um, I'd love to hear what you guys think. This is obviously an exercise in participation and democracy, so it right. would be great to hear your point of view. Um, and any questions you have. Have people um, seen and participated in the work, generally, in the room? There's yes. another chance. There is. Uh, so at the end of this week, um, it will, the Capitalism Works For Me sign will be in um, Southbank and back in Docklands, and you can look at follow.com.au to find out exactly where, but it'll run from Thursday to Sunday. Um, put your hand up if you'd like the microphone. Go on. I remember some of you. <laughs> <laughs> he records it all here too. <laughs> Hello. Um, this is a bit of a boring, pragmatic question, but you mentioned earlier that it's kind of how do you know if your art has had impact um, and that if you can't tell if anything's changed, then has it been successful? Do you actually have any, through the centre, do you have any methods that you use to measure or to know if art has created any impact? Is there any kind of frameworks that are useful in thinking about that? Yeah, that was sort of how we got started. Was um, One was we, we wanted to know if anything existed, because I had doubts, and I think Steve as an organiser had doubts about his effectiveness as like organizing marches and what those marches actually did. So we, um, we, that's how we started. We started with interviews and he's sort of continued on with more and more research and published some papers that are on the site. But I'll give you the, like, the quick version, which is it starts with like really a, a really rigorous questioning of what you're actually trying to achieve Part of the reason we wanted to publish this stuff and do the research is we were afraid someone else was going to do it and do it wrong. Um, and sort of impose like, well, you do, you measure this or, you know, and that it would ruin it, you know. But um, well, it has to be artist-centered and artist-led. So, that, and, but it, that doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It means um, really asking like, hey, what am I trying to get done? Um, how would I know if I if it happened? What would visually like? What could I see that would be different? Like, things like that, and then letting that become your standard of evaluation, and then figuring out how to measure that. Um, that's the the short version. Great, thank you. That was not a boring question at all. <laughs> <laughs> Over here. There are a lot of um, really great resources and videos on the Center for Activism website that go into a lot of this kind of stuff, so mm -hmm. do seek it out. And we have written a book that is my fault, it's not published already, and I feel really guilty, and it'll get done soon. <laughs> so watch that space. Yeah. Um, I just had a question about the idea of participation. You mentioned that as one of the strategies, potential strategies in the ethical spectacle yeah. idea. And it's, I guess, a tension that I grapple with when working in specific communities or, you know, working site specifically as someone who's sort of dropped in to a place that isn't deeply connected with that community and expecting the audience or the members of that community to sort of make the work for you or for them. And I guess I'm interested in um, whether you have a sense of that tension or how you grapple with it as an artist slash activist. Yeah, I think that the leadership part, I, I, it's leadership, right? Um, and it's really important and there's a lot of ways that through bad organizing you can make the process, uh, for lack of a better word, like disrespectful, right? So one of the things that we talk about a lot is like, all right, we're gonna ask people to meet and we say, we're gonna meet at this time, 6.30, but that there's also an end time and you end on time, right, no matter what because these people have committed to coming, by the way, what time is it? 
Okay. We're good. Have committed, you know, like made plans like you did and set aside time and maybe gotten a babysitter or whatever you had to do to get here. And then if this is supposed to end or you expect it to last an hour and it lasts longer, um, it's, it is really disrespectful of people's time and it makes it harder for them to participate, right? Or if you're like, okay, this is the thing that the newspaper got started because Andy was like, do you, the, the Democratic convention is coming up, do you want to go to DC? Everyone's gonna, it's this big protest and everyone's gonna get arrested. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that at all. Because it's not really important that I'm in there. It's just important that another body is in handcuffs. And like, that's not really respectful of me and what I could contribute and who I am. It's a waste of my time, you know? So thinking about um, how you involve people in a way that makes them necessary and also is um, uh, respectful of what they can contribute the limits of that, right, and make it really easy. That part's important. The other part about like coming from the outside, like so often I am coming from the outside. This is the second time in my life I've been to Australia. I don't know anything much at all about Melbourne, right? Um, and working with sex workers, like I have no experience uh, with sex work. I no one close to me, drug users, like, injection drug users don't have experience, but that that actually can be an asset if you're a kind of a respectful outsider. And you can also say things, like in Birmingham, I could say things that people there couldn't say. And they kind of were like hoping that I would, and I'm like, so if anyone gets mad, you tell them I did it and I left, <laughs> you know? And, and that there's ways that you can use that role um, that works and also identify you know if you're coming from the outside you see things differently that can be a real advantage so those are some some of the thoughts i guess what um you're also pointing to though is sometimes um i'm certainly aware that um uh, as a white person it's not always my um time to speak when it comes yeah. to different kinds of um issues and and likewise, um, if it comes to sex work or queer issues, because it's not how I identify. So um, that's, one, I guess, one of the many tensions that artists need to be aware of, especially right. when you're involving other people. So, like, when I went to work with the sex workers, um, I, I come and I'm like, okay, so we have the AIDS conference in this many weeks. What do you want to get done? And I'm here to help, right? So you make the list. We're, I'm going to help you make the list. And like, I'm gonna moderate this meeting so it moves through when we get out of here on time and stuff, you know? But like, you are gonna tell me what needs to happen. And then, and then the projects that come out of that come through consultation. So because I don't know, you know, I'm like, could we get away with this, do you think? Would that be, you know, and there's a lot of like, I have expertise in creating spectacles. I have expertise in you know, these very specific things. I have no expertise in sex work. I have no expertise in culture of South Africa. I have no expertise when it comes to who you are. And so we have to work together, but we also have to understand the roles, right? And, and I consider myself as like working, it's not even in collaboration, it's like almost in service, right? Cool. Um, other questions? Just on the activist side of things, are you really influenced by Solalinsky's work? <laughs> um, I hate that this is on tape, but uh, my dad has owned Rules for Radicals, and I have his copy, and I've not read it. Oh, no! <laughs> Would you like my copy? <laughs> no, no. The, I, I, I don't want to take yours. Uh, I have one. And I need to read it, and I know it's important, and I know that I've like absorbed those lessons, and I know some of the concepts, and I'm just embarrassed that I haven't read it. <laughs> you caught me. A very lovely um, artist in Melbourne called Kate Sullen once said to me, which was the greatest gift of advice, um, she said, sometimes there's a book on your bedside table that you know you need to read, and you put a lot of guilt and a lot of pressure on yourself. That Why haven't you read that book? She says, it's just not time to read that book yet. <laughs> you will read that book yeah. when it is the right time That's to read great. that book, which is a very nice um, 
get out guilt. Um, yeah, get out of guilt kind of gift. Um, are there other questions? Because I have more. I want to know what your thoughts are on um, uh, the role of, of sort of educational institutions in, in sort of creating actually creative citizens, active citizens. And, and obviously our education system is pretty different, very different mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, is it more professionalized here? Um, oh, what, what would you, how would you define pre, what do you mean by professionalized? Like, like the idea is that you go to university and then you get a job. And then uh -huh. you no, go to pervasive. university to get a job. For, to get a certain kind of professional sure. job? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Does that bleed over into more? That's the one. And of the it definitely problems. bleeds into artistic practice. Yeah. So I think um, for many artists, the the sort of trajectory is um, art school and some sort of career on the other side. Mm. And I, you know, personally, I've done over the for our Victorian College of the Arts, I have um, done teaching there over the last, I guess, eight years, and it's it's fascinating to me that um, the ways in which the engagement with industry and the the um, the way that that's placed, that they have placed importance on how you're going to be an artist in the world has shifted a lot in the kind of courses that people do at, at our College of the Arts anyway. Yeah. Um, ha, like the question of how are you going to be an artist is, is way more prevalent in those courses than, than it was 10 years ago, that's for sure. Some of that I think is good. You know, uh, there, I got some of it when I went to school, but I think if I went to school five years earlier, you'd get no, none of it, like no professional training. And there is, you know, part of the professional training is empowering. The lack of professional training can be one of the things that contributes to disempowering artists and making that myth that you can't survive real, you know? Um, but so what is the question? Um, I guess when, how, what's this, well, I didn't, I'm not as interested in artists so much as yeah, like yeah. the kinds of think, creative thinking that you're trying to inspire um, people when you have conversations with them on the street. Um, how much do you think how they went to school, what they learnt at school, shapes the kinds of thinking processes that they have to critically analyse our economic systems, our, our political systems and their role within it? I think what I'm trying to do is the, a big core part of liberal education, which is like to free yourself to like doubt your own beliefs, to look at, um, look at all different kinds of viewpoints, to like understand things as complex, that, that dogma and, and um, tradition um, have their place, but are not like, uh, they don't have to be the foundation of your beliefs and things like that, right? Like it, it's all in there. And um, so if someone, I think as the more you have that kind of liberal education, liberal college education, and I mean liberal in the open sense, um, the more like you, likely you are to look at the sign and like be able to make the leap. Um, I just a couple days ago was talking to an engineering student from Boston who had a really hard time and so I, I kept coming back to like well you know in engineering if you're not creative you're just like another version of the machine like a computer right like in order to really solve problems you have to be able to think about it in a new way and that's the same with our economic system, right? Like it, we need creativity in order to think of another way that it can work and how it can improve. If we just accept it as it is, it never changes. And that was a point when he, like, you know, I'm like framing it in his language, right? Um, so, but I think, you know, real science, really good scientists are not executing instructions. They're like asking big questions and trying to come up with new answers and thinking about it in different ways, right? So um, I'm not saying that it only comes from liberal, liberal arts or the arts, you know, it needs to be a part of all those, um, you know, yeah, all those fields. Yeah. Um, before we finish, unless other people want to chime in, um, we, we sort of skirted around, but we haven't talked directly about um, the New York, New York Times Special Edition. Uh -huh. um, is it fair to say, or do you agree that that was like quite a significant turning point in your practice. Um, yeah, I guess it was 10 years, yeah, it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and especially because it came like 
bang after the election of the previous president, and we're now in the next one, yeah. the disastrous of next one. Um, yeah, like how do you how do you sort of understand that work ten years on, um, especially you know. I guess there's a lot of conversation that's, you know, like we've shifted a, a conversation quite substantially in that time yeah. around fake news and around the different yeah, ways yeah. that other, you know, that, that kind of information is, is sort of shifted or manipulated. So right. I think people have a different kind of, um, I, w I don't want to say cynicism, but like they have a different criticality with the information that they're getting that they yeah. might have received than the way that they might have received it 10 years ago. Well, I always thought of the newspaper both as like, it was one piece, I have, I have a um, hard time with, with um, holding on to like the feeling of achievement. It lasts like a good 30 seconds for me. I where, understand. <laughs> yeah, like finish something, it's done, I look at it, I'm like, this is so great. And then about a 30 seconds later, it's like, all right, so yeah. what's next, you know? And um, that one, for days after, I'd like be in the shower and like, I cannot believe that happened. I cannot believe we did it, you know? And then it worked. And so it felt like a, a, a significant achievement. And then the way it resonated around the world too, like we were on the front page of the paper in Mexico and like on the evening news in Germany. And, and one of the things I, one of the lies I love about the project is that you just told the media that millions of copies were printed. Right. There were 80,000 copies printed, which is a lot, but it yeah. wasn't a million. It doesn't they, sound and, like a and lot. And then CNN is like, a million copies, yeah. <laughs> and I love it. And if you watch that video, if you watch it again, I am trying so hard not to laugh, because I'm like, I can't believe they believed that. Like, that was a joke. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to hold it in, but... Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, so it, it felt like both an achievement, but also like this proof of concept, like this idea of instead of criticizing, we can present the world that we want and that will resonate, like all the evidence was there, right? And, um, and, and so that helped with, and, and the approach too of like, we're going, the, just being more positive and, and making something legible and that you would, it was, it was really important to me that people didn't feel like it was a trick. Like, you know, fake news, like you're supposed to believe it. Mm -hmm. This newspaper, you were supposed to believe it for like seven to 15 seconds and then realize like, oh, I get it. And then feel, not feel like you'd been tricked, but felt like you were now in on a joke that you could share with other people and that that worked, right? And those were all things that I wasn't quite sure of working on it and none of us were. And so it became like um, an example. The, uh, the unfortunate thing is it became an example of like other fake newspapers, positive newspapers came out after that. I was like, that's not the lesson. It's not to make a newspaper with good news. Yeah. It's to make, it's to, to present people with a tangible future that as, that's an alternative vision that's not coming out of politicians that are thinking in four-year cycles or commercial industries, but like something else. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, toured with Naomi Klein um, around the world when she was um, working, talking through her mo most recent book and having listened to thousands of audience questions, um, <laughs> my friend has really kind of emerged with the, the, the main question that people were asking over and over again is how can we be optimistic? How can we think about the future and yeah. still um, yeah, and, and be positive about it, especially in a climate change discussion. Um, so I think... It's I mean, a great question for her, too, because her yeah. stories are of disaster. And, a, and, and there's a, a book that I've... Was one of them, yeah, really influenced by recently called uh, Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts. And, he, and it's written for, by a socialist... Uh, criticizing the left's environmental message from a further left perspective. And he's talking about how um, the idea that, uh, uh, you know, a very, a very sort of common message on the left by environmentalists is um, the world is going to end, it's going to be a disaster, we need to cut back. And it, how much that aligns with a very right-wing idea of austerity. You've had too much, you need to cut back. And so it works for both. 
and instead envisioning, and this makes people bristle, makes them uncomfortable, but like a world of abundance, a world where we can live at the standard of living we have now and everyone can share it, which is like the socialist dream, right? But to, to present that kind of vision, um, I think is the most important thing right now. Yeah, cool. All right, that leaves us exactly on 60 minutes. So it is really um, a privilege and thank you so much to, for being here, Steve. Um, please join me in thanking Steve for all of his great insights. Thank you. Thank you for coming along, everyone. Um, so the, um, Capitalism Works For Me, True or False, um, is, yes, being presented as part of the Festival of Live Art um, by Arts House. Um, but it is now going to tour around Australia and then we'll come back to Melbourne as part of the Fringe Festival in September. So um, if you're not available for the rest of the week, there is plenty more opportunity to, to sort of think about um, and participate in the kinds of conversations that it's provoking. Um, thank you so much for coming and we'll see you again.